Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. We've got a wonderfully eclectic show for you today. Our featured guest is Sophie Harrison talking about her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, A Doctor's Story. We'll hear from Jessie Keane on her novel, Never Go Back. And Phil Johnson, writing as P.N. Johnson, will be chatting about his latest crime novel, Run to the Blue. Sophie, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you very much for having me, Lee. Looking forward to chatting to you about your book, The Cure for Good Intentions. Now, that's what it's called now. But doing my research on you, there was a stage, I think, when this was going to be called The Golden Minute. Am I right? Yes, that's right, actually. It was originally called The Golden Minute, which is a semi-medical term, which refers to the amount of time you're meant to have to make a decision in a, in a really big medical crisis. That first minute after a heart attack or something that's, like that. Yeah, that kind of thing. But actually... I think eventually felt that the title was lending a little bit too much spurious drama to a book which isn't really about crisis moments but more about slower decision making really. And it's a fascinating book and I looked at your picture on the sleeve for a long time I thought I know you and now we've (laughs) met I know I know you because you worked at the doctor's surgery that I attended and I was thinking this must kind of be an occupational hazard for you that you must bump into people all the time who are your patients that's right particularly so in somewhere like Cambridge which is an, an enormous town and I have worked in more than one medical practice here from my end of things it's sometimes quite hard to know whether you know people or what context you know them from really it sort of doesn't matter because unless somebody were to approach me and, and wish to address me as their doctor I would never address them as someone I'd met as a patient ever because, you know, it's confidential going to the doctor and that's how we preserve privacy. I think because I've got kids at school here and actually grew up here as well, sometimes it gets very laid and I can't actually remember (laughs) how I know someone at all. I suppose the only sort of danger I sometimes think is I come off slightly chilly or rude because I'm just walking around with a slightly glazed expression, not acknowledging anyone. (laughs) Um, So if I've done that to you, it's not intentional. It's just just being discreet. (laughs) That's right. That's right, yeah. And you are discreet in your book as well, as we'll find out. So you cover um, lots of patients and talk about your interactions with lots of patients. And you decided to cover their identities by calling them Smith, all Smith. Mm, That's right. I think that's um, potentially slightly irritating, actually. It was a difficult decision. I'm not hugely keen on the habit of giving patients whole new names because it almost feels like you're taking too much of their own identity. So it was meant to be very artificial. It was meant to acknowledge the fact that I'm completely covering up an identity rather than trying to reinvent it. Because I think the difficult thing about writing about, you know, real life events and people is that confidentiality is absolutely paramount. But at the same time, the really interesting thing to me is what people's actual lives are like and the kind of things that actually happen. And then that's just really their possession, not mine. So to sort of rewrite it as if I were a novelist and start using new names and completely constructed um, identities just didn't feel right either. 
Well, we're going to be finding out all about those uh, patients over the course of the next hour or so, but we'll listen to your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you? Yes, music's been really important. It was very important through medical school because that involves a lot of solitary study, music's company in the most basic way. And then when I became a junior doctor, you're often on a schedule that doesn't match up with the rest of the world. And again, it's very nice to have music that you can come back to on after a night shift and know that there's something there that's awake at the same time as you after that as a GP I find mostly it happens on home visits there's something very nice about playing something completely contradictory to the visit you've just had it sort of breaks you out of the house you were in and gives you a transitional time between the house you were in and the surgery you're going back to and also it's quite nice sometimes play something very sweary, or <laughs> which uh, you requested me not to choose today, so yes, I haven't. No swe- <laughs> There's no swearing in this one. What, what is this one to you then? This is Philip Glass and the opening of Glassworks. Yeah, so this is completely non-sweary. I haven't got much to say about this really, other than it's, I just find it completely pretty. And it goes on in a very pleasing way that sounds almost like it's going to be mathematical, but isn't. I love it. That was the opening of Glassworks by Philip Glass. First choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Sophie Harrison. Sophie wrote technical manuals and TV listings before becoming an editorial assistant and later an editor for Granta magazine. In 2003, she began retraining as a doctor, the subject of her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, A Doctor's Story, which came out last year. The Times Literary Supplement said of it, It is rich in both incident and anecdote. There are startling diagnoses, poignant losses, hair-raising births, close calls. Harrison also captures, with tenderness and skill, the intimate interactions in between dramas. The book was also a book of the week on BBC Radio 4, read by Tamsin Gregg. Sophie will talk about the content of the book, of course, but first of all, what was that like, having the book of the week, hearing your words come out of the mouth of Tamsin Gregg? So it was obviously really, really terrific to have a book of the week. It felt like a complete wonderful blessing. To have somebody with a much better voice than mine read it was a complete treat as well, because it was almost like, this is the person I could have been (laughs) if I had a bit more ability to project my voice and a bit more ability to phrase dramatically. I mean, she's got a wonderful voice, hasn't she? It was also very strange because obviously they had to cut it up into pieces to make it fit the week, so it's very abridged. And it was interesting to see what other people's choices are when they're abridging. I mean, it also makes your own book quite strange when it comes back to you, especially when it's read by somebody else, and especially because I guess it is a sort of first-person book, and then you've become this other person briefly. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a real adventure, though. And the book itself, why did you write it? What was your reasoning behind writing it? It was something I had been writing for quite a long time, almost in some ways as a diary. So the business of changing from one type of industry to a completely different one was was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and I did make notes. So some of it came from notes that I was just keeping for myself, partly to accompany me on a very long bus journey I used to make to a very rural practice where I was working for a while I had a column for quite a while in Financial Times magazine where they kindly asked me to write about medical things but not from a particularly scientific viewpoint and I just got more and more interested in how all sorts of different things fit together because I think people frequently say to me oh you had a big transition you were a journalist editor and then you became a doctor aren't they very different actually 
in quite a lot of ways they're less different than you might expect um, and the common thread between them I would say is curiosity about other people. And so those notes because that was my other question how you wrote it so mm. those notes and that diary that was your source material if you like. Yes, that's right. So I wrote it in a completely disorganised and unstructured way and then <laughs> tried to rearrange it afterwards, which I think, having been an editor, is not bad practice for, actually, because a lot of the time you can, you're can you looking for things that are worthwhile in, in the middle of things that are less obviously useful. And I suppose the big question that you do answer right at the beginning, but why? Why you decided to train? I know you say there are similarities between the two professions, but there are also massive differences. So why... Why did you move from one area editing into what yeah. on the surface seems completely different to yeah. medicine? That's a completely fair question. That's probably partly why I wrote a book, because I was trying to figure out why and still am trying to figure out why. I mean, one thing it's probably worth anybody contemplating the same path to know is that it does tend to have a velocity that's quite hard to resist. So if you're like me from a non-medical background and you don't have anybody medical in your family, you probably don't know a huge amount of what the job actually entails and year on year you find you've invested more and more in the training and so it's harder and harder to sort of backtrack or change direction so it does have its own it does have its own forward motion that takes away quite a lot of decisions you know the big decisions at the beginning when you decide to go why I decided to go I had I had always wanted part of me had always wanted to be a doctor but I just didn't think I had the right talents or abilities to do it specifically in science and maths and so on. I'm sorry to say, I think it's probably still true. <laughs> I'm not brimming over with scientific or mathematical ability. In fact, I think I'm getting worse. But I did have a very good... I went to a very a brand-new medical school in Brighton, Sussex, which was very sympathetic to people from non-typical backgrounds and was very encouraging about the fact that we need all kinds of doctors and we do need people with talents in different areas. And you talk about... A restlessness and an urge to make things better, quite simply, yeah. as some of the motivations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think I mentioned in the book, when you go off to do your medical school interview, if you can lay hands on anybody who's done anything before. So a friend of mine, my brother, was a nurse for a while and his friend kindly had a chat with me. He was a junior doctor and said, whatever you do, don't say in the interview you want to help people because that's all that anyone ever <laughs> says. They've heard it before. And of course, I went into my interview and immediately said, oh, I want to help people. Sounded completely naive. But... Yeah, I mean, there's not much you can really change about the fact that that is one of the fundamental motivations for choosing a job that's in other ways quite difficult. And it didn't take long in the book. One of the interesting factors, it didn't take long for you to be changed. You talk about that velocity once you're in and it sort of develops that momentum and how it changed you. Yes, that's right. So you think, oh, I'm driving this sort of chariot into this new world that I've decided to enter. And then very quickly, it's clear that you're actually a part in this world and that your individual self is quite well it's not it's not hugely valued by the big systems that training is carried out in I mean hospitals are enormous places usually with their own very very established cultures um junior doctors by definition rotate jobs every three four six months to a year and you're a junior doctor for you know easily 10 11 years but you're still going to be this rotating person and mainly for most people in the hospital you're the person on the road that they need to see on Tuesday night so it's a really really different world to what I still sort of think of as the outside world and even coming out of hospital which I write about in the book and going making the choice to go into the community and become a GP 
it's also its own place. I mean, every every workplace has its own culture and its own rituals and its own language and its own expectations. But I think it's more pronounced in some ways in medicine, partly because of the confidentiality and because of the fact that a lot of the world that you're in, you can't talk about outside it. It's a sort of secret place in some ways, and that gives it a very particular feel. And very, as you say, very hierarchical. And yeah. the decisions you make couldn't be more important, could they? No, that's right. And I think what's sort of frightening about it, and also exciting, is that even when you're very, very beginning, so you've just finished medical school and you're an FY1 in your first job, you, you are the people who are sort of running the hospital particularly at night. So you, you're supervised all the way along. You, you're in a chain of command and you do carry out the jobs that you've been asked to do. But you, you also have to make hundreds of very small decisions. But all of those decisions potentially have quite big consequences. So it is a very um, big strain on your nerves because you, you're conscious that really quite insignificant choices may have unexpected consequences. And also right at the beginning, you, if you've got imagination, which is probably not actually a great thing to have, on a medical ward (laughs) you can be tormented by all the outcomes that you weren't sure what they could be but you feel that they might be very bad so that does settle a bit I think as you get more experienced. Did you become more aware of your own mortality? Yeah probably more so because I went in as a mature student I mean I wasn't 102 I was 28 so I probably didn't need to feel quite as dilapidated as I did (laughs) but one of the joys of going in at sort of 18, 19 is some of that sort of youthful feeling of I'm going on forever carries on and because you won't necessarily I'm really generalising here because lots of people do go from quite difficult backgrounds and have had quite a lot of medical trauma and that's why they choose medicine but there are lots of 18, 19 year olds who have been lucky enough to have quite uneventful lives from a medical point of view and that does insulate you a bit whereas if you're a wee bit older it's much easier to think oh god that reminds me of you know something happened to my auntie or my mum or one of my friends you know you've seen more things and also you because you've had a job the people that you're looking after the patients are people who are more real to you and you completely understand the implications of being in hospital for their job or for their children yeah well thank you sophie we'll come back to you in just a minute but we'll leave medicine for just a moment and hear from jesse keen jesse's debut novel dirty game the first in the annie carter series came out in 2009 it was followed by five more all sunday times bestsellers Since then, there's been the Ruby Dark series and seven standalone novels. But Annie Carter is back in Jessie's latest gangland crime thriller, Never Go Back. And when I met Jessie, I started by asking her what the novel's about. It's the seventh of um, the Annie Carter series of books. Um, It goes right the way back to when I started with the very first one, Dirty Game. And it sort of runs alongside all of her books, I think, that there are things happening which have never been clear before and which suddenly have come to the fore. So, yeah, it's a continuation of her story, really. And you must know these characters really well by now. I mean, this is a, what, how many books in are we? 15, is that right? 15 books, yeah. I'm working on the 16th now. So, yeah, it's a long way in, isn't it? 15 years in the business as a professional writer. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a surprise, quite a shock when you look at it like that, yeah. And these characters, have they gone in the direction that you thought they would? No, actually, I would say they've gone completely differently. They're, they're going all over the world. There's all sorts of excitement, mafia connections and wonderful sort of tie-ups with fabulous grey fox, a, a mafia boss and 
yeah, it, it's quite thrilling and quite international, really, yeah. You must know them inside out. I mean, it must be very easy to write, is it? It's nice because when you're writing a standalone novel, you don't know the characters. You have to get to know them. But with Annie and Matt, they'd never go back. I, I just knew them. They were there and they just came straight onto the page. So that was great. And you've talked about how your life has influenced your writing. Are these characters based on people that you know? Yeah, people that I have known, yeah. I think Max was based on a gangster I met years ago in London, in in Soho. He was this fabulous-looking man with this black hair and blue eyes and was very arresting to look at. And I thought, yeah, I've got to get him down on paper one of these days. And he sort of stuck in my mind, and that's Max Carter now. Annie Carter, she's... Well, she thinks like me. She she is me with knobs on, really. She's <laughs> me to the power of ten. Yeah, I, I really love Annie and I, I just love to write her. And I love that when you write, you've spoken about how you visualise certain actors in that role, if you like. Yes, I do. Uh, the lady I visualise as, Annie Carter, I think it's Alison Ping in Coronation Street, the lady who plays Carla, the, the factory boss. I always sort of picture her as her, yeah. And what about Max? Max, he's just this chap I met years ago who who fancied my friend, unfortunately, <laughs> rather more than he fancied me. But <laughs> so yeah, that's Max. And you said that you're a, a pantser rather than a plotter, which is quite unusual for people writing crime novels because they have to be so tightly plotted. So how does that work for you in terms of of writing? Do you find you have to do lots of drafts, or does it sort of fall into place as you're writing? I do loads of drafts. Usually it's about five drafts. You start off loving it and you end up hating it. You know, you go through all these stages and you think, no, I can't face it again. But yeah, five drafts is normal for me. I have friends like Peter Lovesy, for instance, who write and plot every single chapter, every single scene before they start. And I wish I could do that. I really do. But I just can't. I just cannot work that way. So I just start with a vague idea of where I'm going and push on, really, until I get to about 120,000 words. And then I think, right, now I'm going to go back and tidy it and tidy it and take this out, put that in. And that's the way I work. I've always worked that way. And so you must lose a lot of words that way, but obviously that doesn't bother you. No, it doesn't. One agent said to me, she said, kill your darling, she said, which means take out the favourite bit, you know, the thing you thought was marvellous and you couldn't part with take it out, pare it down, tidy it up. And she was right. She's absolutely right. And you've spoken a lot about your Romani heritage and how important that is to you. Does that come through in the writing, not just in the subject matter, but in the in the way you write, in your style, do you think? I don't think it does. I, I mean, I've written one book, I think, which sort of focused more on the Romani sort of population, which was Fearless, um, about a Romani boxer. But... Um, Mostly, I don't think it impacts on me. I think there's a big culture that goes through the Romani population of it about music and art and the spoken word. Maybe, yeah, maybe that is working away in the background there. Maybe, yeah, that could be a Romani influence, I think. And what's next for you then? Are you writing book 16 at the moment? Yeah. Or is that written? After Never Go Back comes Dead Heat. That will be out next February. It takes a year usually to write a whole book. Then you just press on with the next one and so on and so forth. And Never Go Back by Jessie Keane is published by Hodder and Stoughton. We're talking on Bookmark today to Sophie Harrison about her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, A Doctor's Story.
So if you're talking about how hospitals are their own world and you talk about the terminology that's used in there, you say, just to quote something back at you, we discuss the patient as if he were a piece of machinery, a car or a plane in need of support or servicing. And that's not out of disrespect, is it? I didn't sense that. That's just because it's a job and that's how you talk about things. Oh, yeah. So I, any given time in both hospital and GP, you've got several sort of language registers operating at the same time. That quote's actually from a sort of acute medical take. So that's the time when the medical staff and the nurses will be handing over patients who've just been admitted and it tends to be quite high pressured and high speed and the decision making that you're trying to make is very much often about what am I going to do in this next minute or few minutes or hour and the language often does default to a very technical register so along with the fact that there is a ridiculous number of acronyms that used to be um, completely terrifying for me there also is this habit of sometimes just talking about them in a slightly mechanical way I don't think it's a reflection of how doctors see their patients I think it's more a reflection of the work that's trying to get done in that room at that time, which is to sort of make a series of quite quick decisions. And often you don't know the outcome of those decisions. I mean, there are lots of stories in the book where we don't know the ending. But, you know, that, I guess, is part of a doctor's life, that often you don't know what happens. Yeah, I mean, again, it's that sort of tension between being conscious that you're making a potentially slightly more frustrating book by not having a series of neat narratives with a beginning, middle and an end. and And then everybody went home and said how great the doctor was sort of ending which would be the best ending (laughs) but that's very true I mean one of the reasons I really love GP is that you do get more sense of people's endings and you do have the privilege of seeing the beginning the middle and some of the things on the way hospital medicine especially when you're in your training years rotating or or in any of acute specialties is very much brief encounters you know you'll see someone for one night and it'll be quite a big night in their lives but you'll never see them again and that up and down, that comes through the moments where you you have to break incredibly bad news to mm. people, along with some actually quite funny moments. I mean, mm. it really is a flip side of the same coin mm. kind of job. So hospital is quite good training for that ridiculous juxtapositions between absolute calamity and then pure slapstick. When you go into GP and you would perhaps have an average see 15 in the morning and 15 in the afternoon... And there's no law to say, oh, you know, that that's going to be organised for you into kind of five people with happy stories, five people with sad stories. You just do not know. And you have to switch tone within seconds because you don't get any decompression time between people. But in a hospital, you have the kind of joy of moving about. So often you can change the physical space you're in and the things that will happen. You can sort of leave behind in the room you were in. In general practice, you're alone in your room with everything that's happening and whatever feelings people have bought or whatever people have decided to tell you sometimes people are incredibly funny and incredibly sweet and sort of tolerant of your inadequacies and then they'll go out and the next person will be extremely angry or extremely upset or be struggling to tell you something that's quite difficult and you the pace is ridiculous and even to this day you know you can have something quite bad happen in GP I remember a colleague had a very small baby who she just thought was going to be a standard here's a little baby coming with a cold and the little baby actually was very very unwell and actually collapsed and lost consciousness which is about the most terrifying thing that can happen in GP and even then she still had sort of eight more people to see so you you even now I think oh you're going to get this now you should have a brief moment where you kind of go and sit in a easy chair and have a cup of tea and 
take in what's happened, but you, you don't have time for that. Yeah, you would in any other job, wouldn't you, if you'd had that level of intensity? Someone would say, oh, take a break. Yeah, you, you usually do. And actually, again, hospitals slightly more set up for that, just in that, you know, there's a sort of ebb and flow in the day. You're, you're setting your own timetable a bit more. You're not on a externally imposed timetable. I mean, I, know, I mean, we're not insane. Obviously, if something catastrophic's happened, people do have a pause, but there's less ability to have any pauses at all. Well, let's take a pause now, actually, yes. uh, <laughs> and listen idea. to Something Changed by Pulp, your second choice of music. Why this one? I mean, I know this song is 1996, so it's well before I went there, but I went to Sheffield for my GP training. So once you finished your junior doctor years in hospital, you'd pick your specialty. I picked GP. Completely randomly ended up in Sheffield, and I guess this is kind of tribute to that time. I've loved this song forever. It's sort of about that same thing, though, which is that he's writing the song before he's actually met the person that the song's for. For me, going to the North for a bit was was really like that, was just coming out of a very southern-based life into a part of the North and just really loving the place, feeling so lucky to be there and so interested in this fantastic city with this enormously diverse groups of people that I just not really encountered in numbers before and it it was a really difficult time because it was a difficult bit of training and I didn't have family there and have my kids my kids were born there but it was also really lovely yeah I wrote this song two hours before we met Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio with Heifer's Bookshop the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876 And we're talking on Bookmark today to Sophie Harrison about her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, A Doctor's Story. Sophie, you were saying that before the music, you made the choice to go into general practice and you sort of alluded to the differences. But why specifically did you make that choice? You, you looked at all the specialisms. You enjoyed some more than others. But what was it about general practice that tempted you? So general practice, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, has had a bit of an image problem in medical schools, for sure. We're a training practice, so one group of people I train and they're medical students. And <laughs> one of them said to me the other morning after he'd sat in a clinic, he said, well, it was extraordinary because obviously I'd never thought of being a GP before and now I could almost entertain it as a possibility. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> kind of you to say. But um, yeah, I, I would say that was a sort of dominant understanding in medical schools that being a doctor is about jumping up with an enormous syringe and electrocuting people and screaming stat and asking people to bring you blood products immediately and, and that GP's a bit sort of um, cardigan-y, for want of a better word, which is not entirely untrue. There are a lot of GPs in cardigans and it's a fine item of clothing, so I wouldn't <laughs> discount it on that, guys. I think it's the diversity that really appeals. You just meet every single sort of person, whereas nearly all the other medical specialties tend to divide people up a bit. And they are quite organ-specific a lot of the time. So I've written in a book about really struggling with the idea of spending all of the rest of my life only doing kidneys or only doing a foot. I think if you're very scientifically minded and, and very technically minded, obviously some of the surgical specialties are wonderful and I just wouldn't be in the right fit for that. But also I love the fact that it's in the community that it serves. And actually the thing that really drew me in was when I did one of my first training jobs, which was in Luton, and I was sent out from day one on home visits. 
And I just thought that was really, just really fantastically interesting. You just get to go into every single different type of house, went up to the top of all these totally unlabeled tower blocks all the time, big houses, small houses, and you're just really conscious of the fact that the patient or the person that you're dealing with is the centre of the story, not you. And that transition when you were going from hospital to, to GP... The differences that you talk about where, you know, you have to wait for tests to come back. Mm. And as you say, people don't come hurrying in to take somebody to a different department. You have to refer and then somebody yeah. has to leave. The speed is a little bit different. The speed is both faster and slower. It's really it's really hard to describe because you've got this big volume of people to see. So there's a large number of appointments in a day. The actual rate is much quicker than nearly anything I did in hospital. I mean, you, you would have a very, sometimes very busy night shift or something, but you didn't have that absolutely constant list coming at you in quite the same way most of the time. I mean, you did have some shifts like that. But at the same time, as you say, it, the decision making is extremely clinical. So you really have to be using your own history taking and your own examination skills and your own very basic investigations so things like a, a urine dipstick or something rather than basing everything on lab tests or basing everything on imaging and for that reason I think you also have to be more able to tolerate some degree of uncertainty. I would say broadly hospital medicine does tend to like to get to an answer and have a sort of diagnosis and I think GP recognises the fact that Lots of people who come to a doctor don't necessarily have a diagnosis. That might not be where they came. Or they might have a diagnosis that's changing, or they might not be particularly invested in the idea of a, a final say-so on what's going on. Or it might not be bad enough to need a great big label stuck on it. And conversely, in that all-completely unsuited group of people, there will be some very serious medical diagnoses going on that you mustn't miss. So that variation is really interesting. And that relationship that you have with your patients where mm. you will see people again and again mm. and get to know them in the book you do question your own empathy and mm. if it's become mechanical how really is it and I hadn't really thought about that but I guess you are trying to empathize with almost every person who comes yeah. through the door so that you can put yourself in their their shoes and imagine what they're feeling yeah that takes its toll the more confident you get the more experience you have the more it's the most joyful part of a job when I was training, so when I was in my early years of GPU, it used to knack me completely and it was really quite draining because I I almost overemphasised with everybody because I was trying to make up for the fact I didn't always know, really didn't know what was going on sometimes. So I really used to get very, very identified with them to probably not the best extent. It wasn't particularly helpful to them and it wasn't particularly helpful to me. Um, and you do need to have some survival instincts. On the other hand, I don't, you can tell when someone's become completely sort of <laughs> mechanical about it and washing them out, and that's no good either. You, you definitely do need to retain a sense of what's important to other people, and as I say, put them in the middle of the story. And I think, actually, my understanding of empathy has shifted over time, and it, it's less about what do I feel they're feeling and more about, actually, this isn't my story, this is your story, and here's your space to tell it, really. And what about the decision-making process in terms of fear of getting it wrong that seemed to be from your book more severe in you or that uh, you felt that more severely as a GP than in hospital I think you can't not feel it more severely as a GP I mean a GP indemnity is way more than all the other medical professions with the exception I think of ops and gynae because the potential for making a really serious mistake is is really big 
you don't have the same level of team support. But most crucially, outside of medicine, people tend to think, oh, they don't have the diagnostic tools, and that's the danger. Actually, diagnostic tools used properly should only really be confirming something you already knew. They shouldn't be making a diagnosis for you. You shouldn't be completely clueless, put them in a scanner, and then say, oh, you should already have known. And It's not the lack of diagnostic tools, it's the lack of time. So in hospital, you can use observation as an actual tool, and that's a really essentially brilliant piece of kit because you can say see a child at midday and hang on to them for eight hours and see if their snuffly thing is going to involve in something horrific or if it's genuinely a snuffly thing and they can go home whereas in GP you're making that decision in in 10 minutes or if you mean more like sort of 15 minutes because I was overrun but even so <laughs> you you don't have very long and you're calling it and I find now when I'm working with my trainees that's the thing that's just really frightening is I had to make this decision the useful way to approach that is to take the sort of life and death aspect out of it and, and remind them that actually, yes, you did have to make a decision, but you can actually revisit a decision. If you haven't written it down in a massive stone and then put it on the wall. You, you, you are allowed to bring the patient back. Or to, you can ring people up and say, I think I got it wrong. I think that's quite important. And I think being able to own the fact that you, you don't get everything right is essential. And that actually is very... It, it makes the job easier because if you're not trying to keep up a front of perfection you're giving yourself much more scope to fix things and to make sure you're going the right way with things. So. That's reassuring. Thank, thank you, Sophie. We'll come back <laughs> to you in just a moment, but we'll take a sidestep now and hear from Phil Johnson. Phil writing as PN Johnson. Phil was a TV newsreader, reporter and producer for both BBC East and ITV Anglia. He was the face and voice of Crime Stoppers in the eastern region and created the TV series 999 Frontline. His first crime novel, Killer in the Crowd, came out last year and was a finalist in the Page Turner Awards. His second novel, Run to the Blue, is out next month. And when I met Phil, I asked him to tell me what it's about. Run to the Blue is a story of a TV reporter who sends down one of London's biggest crime barons with some secret recording, which all reporters, and I used to be one, like to think they can do, uh, and his family want revenge. But the day which is supposed to be the best day of her career, the biggest day of her career, when this guy is sent down and she's in the Old Bailey, she's pulled out of court because she herself becomes the news. The reason is her husband, who's a celebrity marriage guidance counsellor, has been exposed for having an affair with a government minister the new Minister for Moral Values. So she's all over the, the, the news for the wrong reasons and her life is collapsing around her and basically she's chased by killers and spies uh, with her love life collapsed, her marriage collapsed and she runs to her friend's villa on the island of Paxos in beautiful Greece to hide. But someone is betraying her. Who can she trust? Oh, don't give any spoilers. Aha. So Paxos, so so why Paxos? Why Greece? Well, I've been lucky enough to have enjoyed holidays sailing in Greece with my lovely wife Fee for many, many years, 20 odd years. And I've written about it in sailing magazines and even in the independent newspaper. And I love the Greek islands. And I love Paxos. I love the people. I love the temperature. I love the places. And if you had to escape from rainy London and nasty London thugs who are trying to kill you and a horrible husband who's betrayed you, what a great place to go. But unfortunately, it's not all as it seems. But Paxos itself is gorgeous and beautiful. 
And so there are a couple of things that you've mentioned that align with your life. How much of your own life have you put in this? How autobiographical is it? It's not autobiographical. I mean, I was a TV reporter with both BBC Look East and Anglia TV for, for many years. And one of my former colleagues actually said to me on, on, fa- on a Facebook post, top TV reporter, isn't that what you did? And I said, yeah, except that this is more a homage to every reporter I've ever written I ever worked with. I've worked with some of the best reporters in BBC and ITV. There's a lot of background TV stuff in this. There's a lot of behind the camera scenes. I mean, my protagonist, Tess Anderson, is confident and out there and forceful, but she's really vulnerable. She's really anxious. She has a rash that appears on her neck when she gets nervous, as a lot of people do. There's a lot of kind of the reality of TV in that. And a few people who have already read it, so they found that fascinating. The live outside broadcast, the newsroom stuff, but also it's the kind of the way the reporter thinks. So it's based on more or less everybody I've worked with rather than one particular person. And Tess Anderson, a woman, you're writing as a woman. Why? I just feel more comfortable writing from... A woman's perspective. I think women are more intuitive, braver. I think they're more able to take on amazing odds against them and win. They're more able to find inner strengths. And she's doing more, like Kath, my previous protagonist, than a man ever could. And I love the idea of, you know, the woman rising to the surface and beating, in this case, men, it's usually men, (laughs) horrible men and actually coming out, oh, I'm not going to give it away. But, you know, she does, can she deal with these horrible people before they they, they kill her? Well, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. No, and also her horrible, I mean, she's got this, on the face of it, wonderful husband, but he's just betrayed her in the nastiest way. And I just, you know, I really hate that. And crime, is this your genre now then? This is your second crime novel? it's a second crime novel, but I, I call it sort of, softish crime it's not gouging eyes out with spoons it's softish crime I mean yes murder there's murder most horrid in it but there's also it's kind of killers and spies secrets and lives lost love and finding love so there is a a love story running alongside because will our protagonists not only survive but actually find a better love why does crime fascinate? It's the biggest selling genre. What do you think it is about crime? Well, as a journalist, I worked in crime. You could say some of the bits I did were criminal, but no, I worked <laughs> in crime. At Anglia, I presented Crime Stoppers for many years. I also worked on a programme called Crime Night and a programme I created and produced called 999 Frontline. And that's still actually running today in various guises. 999, watch your emergency, 999 on the frontline. It's the same format, it's the same programme. And this was the first of that format. So I kind of created that and really enjoyed it and had a lot of experience going out with police officers in the back of police cars with a cameraman rushing around going to places drug busts and everything else so i did get to learn a lot of police procedure although my books are not police procedurals and i think people like to see the bad guys going down because even in sometimes in life they don't and some things i feel very strongly about crimes against women really upset me i like to put the world to right in many ways and this is your second crime novel it is was this a different experience to writing your first you know what did you learn really that you could use in this one well actually bizarrely enough i wrote this book before i wrote killer in the crowd which came out last year which was my first published novel i actually wrote this one first but the publishers wanted to put killer in the crowd out first and this one i had been working on for some time across the two books really i think the most important thing i've learned is it's not finished when you think it's finished there's so much more in there um there's so much more in the characters that you can bring out I was doing a talk to a writing group last year and I was saying to them, you know, whenever you think you've finished writing your novel, you haven't. You need to get 
not friends. Friends and family will always say, oh, that's really nice. No, you need to find an external editor who will say, really, you can do better. Really, this isn't very good. Because however good it is, you can improve on it. The readers have got, you know, they deserve the best. If someone's invested, even if it's only 99p as an ebook, they've invested time in reading your work. It's got to be the best for it. You don't want them to say, oh, really? You know, I love it, obviously, when you get averaging 4.5 out of 5 stars and people say wonderful things. You know, people have said about this, it's a perfect summer read, it's absolutely brilliant and all the rest of it. Utterly beautiful, said the guy who lives in Paxos. And you kind of feel it's worth it. The hours you put into it and you're putting so much of yourself into it. You write some scenes, and I don't mind admitting a couple of scenes I wrote for the last book and a couple of scenes I wrote for this one. You know, I really cried because I actually felt for the protagonist and I actually felt for the people in it. And I've had people I know who've read both of the books and had an advanced copy of this one. And they said, yeah, I got really upset then, you know, and I was so tears of joy. We read books for different reasons. We read books like mine, which is very much a kind of fast adventure a holiday read. We read books like that because we want to escape. We want to be taken away. We want to experience other lives and other people in situations and see them live through it and see them survive it and see them get improved from it. And if you can end up with a, a life affirming, I call it a Hollywood ending, something that really makes you go, oh, it kind of helps people in a way. And we live in very troubled, very nasty times. And I think it's great to give people an escapism and some entertainment. So good crime. It's, it's not just about plotting. It's not just about putting the pieces of the jigsaw together. You've no. got to have a decent plot. You've got to have a great story. A great story will carry it. That's the car. You've got to be the driver and you've got to take people with you. You want them as your passengers. Plot is absolutely vital. And I think this plot is terrific because... I'm not going to go into it, but there are some great things in here. And there's some, I say, obviously, but there are some interesting things that happen. But you've got to have everything else with it. You've got to have the people. You've got to have the, the protagonist has got to work. The, the characters have got to work. The whole thing. And if I can take people from rainy London to beautiful Greece and you can feel the sun, you can hear the cicadas, you can listen to the little scopsow, you can smell the baklava, you can taste the ouzo, that is where it happens. That's where the magic is. And Run to the Blue by P.N. Johnson is out next month, but available for pre-order and published by Burning Chair. We've been speaking on Bookmark today to Sophie Harrison about her book, The Cure for Good Intentions, a doctor's story published by Fleet. Well, Sophie, what's next for you? Are you going to write any more? I'm slightly waiting for a subject, I think, actually. And a bit of time, I would guess. A bit of, t- a bit of time, <laughs> yeah. It's been a fairly busy couple of years from medical practice point of view really so yes time but time's less of a problem than discipline I think for me and yes of course you you cover Covid in the last chapter of the book but obviously a massive thing for you as a doctor has that changed you as a doctor I think it changed everybody didn't it it had some quite useful practical outcomes for GP in that it sort of provided this weird sort of modernization boost we did develop technologies that probably should have developed about 25 years ago when everyone else did like the ability to text patients which sounds very trivial but is actually reshaping how we do things and then obviously there's all the fairly controversial stuff around face-to-face versus telephone consulting in practice we've kind of gone back to almost where we were but it's very useful now to have this different modes available and people especially in part of Cambridge where I practice actually really like telephone consulting I think they'll, they'll often ask for it by preference because they've just got something they want sorted quickly and they don't necessarily feel they need to come in I mean leaving aside the much bigger 
emotional and philosophical ramifications of it. It, it, it in a very sort of practical way it did change things some ways for the better I think and what, and what about you as a doctor now because uh, what about your imposter syndrome <laughs> let's, let's just ask it uh, up front which kind of runs my through the imposter syndrome <laughs> I don't think I can probably fix my imposter syndrome anytime soon I mean I had imposter syndrome when I was an editor so I think it might be following <laughs> following me around <laughs> a bit of imposter syndrome's not a terrible thing is it I think it keeps you from getting a humongously fat head I mean it's not it's not a great thing to think you know everything as a doctor it really isn't so as I say being comfortable with feeling uncomfortable is probably the definition of GP <laughs> so it's still with it's still with you it's still, <laughs> still with me yeah. friendly yeah and a question we ask all our featured guests on bookmark what are you reading at the moment I'm reading Elizabeth Strout's book O William which is so far as brilliant as everything else I've read, read by Elizabeth Strout I feel like an idiot because something about the combination of her name and the title of her first book were very sounded sort of very dry and boring and I thought oh that's not going to be going good I finally read it it was brilliant so good yes I'm looking for that's on my list I'm very much looking forward to reading it I know what you mean about the name something about the name Strout isn't there it's the name Strout and the olive together it just sounded so sort of Frumpy. Ancient, uh, yes. yeah. yeah. But not, no, we're both, we're both recommending it. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show, there's a history theme to it. Our featured guest is historian Claire Jackson, talking about her book Devil Land, England Under Siege, looking at the turbulent history of England in the 17th century. We'll be speaking to Jeremy Warman about his novel The Way to Hornsey Rise, set in 1960s London, and chatting to Alison Booth about her novel Bellevue, set in New South Wales in Australia in the 1970s. But we'll sign out now, Sophie, with your last choice of music, which is Just in Time by Nina Simone. Why this one? Partly because it was mentioned in another book I was reading, which is called um, Every Good Boy Does Fine by american pianist called jeremy denk and it's kind of musical autobiography obviously he's a classical pianist and i really don't know very much about classical music but it's i love hearing it i love reading about it and i'm fascinated by people who know lots and can tell you about it in a very painless way which is what he does in this book the way he talks about what she's doing in this song and harmony and the melody and the way they're sort of walking away from each other and the way she's singing about change while actually landing on exactly the same musical note the whole way through is terrific. But for me, I love this. It just sounds completely anarchic, and then somehow there is some discipline all the way through, and then there's her classical piano skills in the middle as well. It's, it's, it's fantastic. also sounds completely, as I say, chaotic, but I love that mixture of chaos and discipline with her. It's just wonderful. Just in time Cambridge 105 Radio.